Good morning. Let's open class with prayer this morning. Our gracious Father in heaven, we want to uh, humble ourselves before you, invite your spirit into our hearts and minds. Thank you for the blessings you've given us. And Lord, we also want to lift up before you all the, the friends and family who are struggling with the flu season and the cold and the sickness and feeling under the weather. And we ask that, that your spirit will, will minister to them and bring them back to health as soon as possible. And those who are struggling with various other losses in their life at this time, that you will bring comfort to them, we pray in your holy name. Amen. Amen. We are doing lesson number four in the uh, quarterly, Stewardship, the Motives of the Heart, and the title is Escape from the World's Ways. And the memory verse is out of Proverbs 11, verse 4 and verse 18, and it says, Riches do not profit in the day of wrath, but righteousness delivers from death. He who trusts in his riches will fall, but the righteous will flourish like foliage. So what is the day of wrath? What is God's wrath? When he lets us go, Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is being revealed against all godlessness and wickedness of men who suppress the truth by their wickedness. And in verse 24, 26, and 28, Paul tells you functionally what that is. Therefore, God gave them up. Therefore, God let them go. God's action to surrender people to their persistent choice of rebellion, of staying outside of his designs, of, of being alienated and disconnected from the source of goodness in life. He finally surrenders them to reap what they've chosen. Is there evidence in Scripture, in the history of people's lives recorded in Scripture, that in fact this is what God does? Do we have evidence of that? Not just description, but actual historical evidence. How about the children of Israel when the scorpions and snakes came in? They were rebelling and rebelling, so God pulls back his hands, and his protective hand that kept them out was gone, so now all these things came in. How about when they went into captivity? Why did they go into captivity? Because God's protective hand, because of their rebellion. How about Jesus, his own life? On the cross, did he experience, quote, unquote, the wrath of God? And Paul uses the exact same language in Romans 4.25 as he does in chapter 1. God gave him up. God let him go. And Jesus' own testimony on the cross, my God, my God, why have you? This is God's wrath letting people go and jesus of course letting people go to to reap what they've chosen the wicked choose sin jesus chose to be our remedy to overcome sin but god let him go to experience the path necessary to achieve that outcome so why won't riches then if we understand wrath is ultimately the day of wrath when god ultimately sets all free to reap what they've chosen why won't riches profit in the day when God removes his protective hand. Can riches protect someone against corrupt character? Can riches protect against agony of heart, misery of soul, conviction of guilt, pain of shame and regret? Can, can riches protect against that? Can riches protect against actually being out of harmony with how life is designed? I'm rich, but I jump on into the lake with 100 pounds around my feet. Maybe with my 100 pounds of gold. Can riches protect from that? No. Then how does righteousness deliver from death? How does righteousness deliver from death? If we believe the scripture, riches are no protection on the day of wrath. Then we understand why. Okay, it's not going to... But how does righteousness protect from death? Maybe you should ask the question, what's the cause of death? What causes death? Sin, okay, which is what? Separation from God. Sin results in separation from God, absolutely. And so you could say sin is choosing to separate from God. You could say it that way too. But ultimately, the root of sin is selfishness, right? Yep, selfishness, which is deviation from God's not only character, but his actual design for life. Then how does righteousness deliver from death? Do we, when we get righteousness, is it something that we get through a legal declaration? We are declared to be righteous, or is righteousness something we actually experience within us? So here's some Bible passages. Genesis 6, 9. Because I will tell you, there's a divide within Christianity, in the vast majority within Christianity, it's 
Righteousness is something you're legally declared and credited with. It's not something you actually experience. In fact, they go as far as to say you're declared to be righteous even though you're not. But here's what the Genesis 6-9 says. Noah was a righteous man, blameless among the people. It doesn't say Noah's, Noah was declared to be legally righteous even though he wasn't. He was a righteous man. Hmm. How about this one, talking about the, the husband of Mary... Uh, Jesus' mother, in Matthew one nineteen, because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her publicly, blah, 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 blah. You know the story. Again, notice Joseph was, talking about his being, his character. Or how about this one? Matt, Jesus speaking in the Beatitudes, Matthew 5, 6. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be declared in heaven to legally have been made so. Or what does it say? For they will be filled. They will be filled. They will be filled. Not their record will be adjusted. Isn't that interesting? See, when you understand how reality works, righteousness is something that has to happen within the believer. Yes? Going back to Noah, with the passage you, you read about um, that he was a righteous man, yeah, uh, this is a good news translation. Noah had no faults. He was the only good man of his time. He lived in fellowship with God. Yes, this one, this one says he walked with God. Yeah, so righteousness is doing the right thing, which is walking with God. Yeah, yeah, I like that. Yeah, yeah. But see, I looked at it when I read this. Righteousness delivers from death. Christ was a righteous man, and he overcame death. When our character becomes a character like Christ, then we will have... The live, we won't die because of the, he, he saved us from death with his righteous life. Yeah, yes, I, I, absolutely. We're absolutely. You're already. Yeah, I'm trying to. But you're right. How do we experience that? Maybe we'll, we'll keep going. So, are we naturally righteous? No. <laughs> Isaiah sixty four six. All our righteousness are like filthy rags. So we don't naturally have righteousness, do we? In our own self, innately, naturally. So where does our righteousness come? From having a character like Christ. Yes, 2 Corinthians 5.21. God made him who knew no sin to become sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God. So our righteousness, as you're saying, comes from Christ and he became sin even though we did not, for the reason that we might be declared righteous even though we're not. No, that we might actually become the righteousness of God. Do you see a difference in that? Absolutely. It's a huge, giant difference. When people believe the other version, it leads to um, lives that are lives that misrepresent God and li- and lives that have no real victory. A frustrating uh, lives of re- recurrent um, uh, struggles with problems in their life. They never get victory because they're not even seeking to become righteous. They don't even expect to become righteous. They're told they won't become righteous. They're only declared to be righteous because of a vicarious substitute who stands in heaven and hides them from God who would see how unrighteous they were if it wasn't for him standing there. But that's not what it says. When you really participate in what God's plan is, you become the righteousness of God. And when the character is the only thing we can take to heaven. That's, we have one. That's when we become the character of Christ, and that's when we become righteous. And we get this righteousness how Habakkuk 2.4 says, See, he is puffed up. He, he, his desires are not upright, but the righteous will live by faith. Righteous will live by faith. What does it mean to live by faith? How do you understand that? Malachi 3.17 and 18 they will be mine, says the Lord Almighty, in the day when I make up my treasured possessions. And what do you think his treasured possessions are? Us. Us. It's not stuff. It's us. I will spare them, just as in compassion a man spares his son who serves him. And you will again see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between those who serve God and those who do not. The righteous serve God. The wicked don't. That's what, is that what it means to live by faith? Live by faith means we live in a heart submitted to trusting in God. Unless we read about Abraham, but I, I, I want you to hear how, how this is, uh, is uh, worded in uh, most, most uh, translations, word it this way, Romans 4.3. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him 
as righteousness. And because it's worded that way, you know, it's worded that way in the English versions, okay, credited to him, some say it was accounted to him as righteousness. Because of that, that's where a lot of people with a legal mindset already go, see, when he trusts God, then, then there's an accounting mechanism that happens. This is actually, I think, a fairly poor translation. Um, but it's a legitimate translation. They can translate it this way. It's within, when you translate from one language to the other, some words have multiple different options you have to choose from. Which one's the best in the context? This is one option that's not an illegal, okay, translation, inappropriate, inaccurate translation. It's just not the best for, I think, what's actually happening. A better translation than credited would be something like, he was recognized to be or acknowledged as righteous because Abraham why why was when he had faith in God why was he then recognized to be or acknowledged to be righteous why yes what's the natural state of the human heart trusting God or distrusting God distrusting and so when your heart has changed from distrust to genuine trust your heart has been set right setting it right putting it right making it right i.e righteous that's righteous his heart's righteous it's right with god now that's righteousness thus in the lexicon if you look up the word the greek word that's translated credited as this is what we read it means to reckon inward count up or weigh the reasons to deliberate by reckoning all the reasons to gather or infer to consider i like this one to take into account see is accounting different than taking into account okay so you could say abraham believed god and god took into account his state of heart and recognized he's now righteous <laughs> see and so this is what it says in the uh, in the lexicon it says this word deals with reality. If I logizomai, that's the word logizomai, if I logizomai, or reckon that my bank book has $25 in it, it has $25 in it. Otherwise, I'm deceiving myself. The Greek word here, to reckon, is not to consider it to be one way when it's not, it is to take into account the reality of what is and recognize it. It is to recognize the reality. You see the difference? That's what, how it actually works. And, and what's happened in the penal legal substitution theology, they've done just the opposite. They, they have made the word mean exactly the opposite of what it actually means. And thus they deceive themselves and they deceive millions. Because what they teach is, in the penal legal view, is that it's not recognizing what is actually in you. You are actually not righteous. You actually don't have $25 in your account. But because Jesus has $25 in his account, he recognizes $25 to Jesus and declares that you now are credited with $25, even though you don't have $25 in your account. That's what they teach. And it's a fraud, and it's a lie, and it cheats people from the victory that Christ wants to give them. So righteousness is simply being right in your inner being, in your heart, with God, living in harmony with his designs, having a character that is transformed to be like him. That's what being righteous means. And thus, when we understand that, then we can answer the question, so how does righteousness deliver from death? Because it restores us into unity with the source of life. We're the vines grafted in. There's no obstacle for the life that originates in Christ flowing in us again. We become partakers of the divine nature. We're moved from outside God's design to harmony with God's design. Thus the Bible says, Proverbs 21, 21, he who pursues righteousness and love finds life. It's really awesome when you put the pieces together and see how it all fits. So first paragraph says, Although Satan failed with Jesus, he has succeeded with everyone else. He will continue to do so until we fight in the armor and power of God, who alone offers us the freedom from the lure of the world. First question. What does it mean he has succeeded with everyone else? Think it through, though. Think about it. He didn't succeed with Jesus. Thank the Lord. Praise God. Praise Jesus. He's absolutely right. He didn't say but he has succeeded with everyone else. It makes it kind of like a comparison, doesn't it? 
Have we started out with the same opportunities that Christ had? In other words, did you have an opportunity to grow up and make a choice to never sin? To never be a sinner? To never be a sinner? Did you have a choice to make the opportunity to make that choice? No. We didn't have that opportunity. Okay? This is a very subtle little deception I want you to see. Adam and Eve had that opportunity. They had the opportunity to make choices to never be a sinner, to never sin. But they chose to sin. They changed themselves. And we are born in sin, conceived in iniquity, as the Bible says. We're born with a condition we didn't choose. That condition will result in sinful choices. You can't stop it by yourself, unaided from Christ. Everybody agree with that? Okay? Jesus was born in a different position than us. We have a sinful mother and father. He had a sinful mother, but the Holy Spirit was his father, so he was not born with a character, an internal propensity, a longing, a desire for selfishness. He was able to be tempted with selfishness, but he didn't desire selfishness. Big difference. So he did have an advantage over us then? He didn't come in your position. Exactly. And this is where a lot of arguments happen within Christianity. And people say, no, he, he was tempted in every way, just like we are, because he had a humanity who, which could be tempted like ours. But he didn't have traits of character that have participated in, 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 in selfishness and thus resonated with, defended, denied, distorted, and justified selfishness. He didn't, he didn't desire or do anything. We have characters from the earliest get-go... If you've had small children, you have children that will act selfishly and they will justify their selfishness. That, Jesus didn't start out that way. He could be tempted with selfishness, but he didn't have propensities toward selfishness. There's a difference between propensities toward and tempting by. So why didn't he inherit his mother's genes for that? He did. That's why he was able to be tempted with selfishness. The, the, the humanity he took upon himself was a humanity that felt the pull of selfishness, but he had a mind, if you will, that did not long for selfishness. So you see in Gethsemane, he was tempted with powerful human emotions to act in self-interest. Adam did not have that. Adam and Eden had advantages over Christ's humanity. He never had an internal pull to act selfishly. Jesus experienced those internal pulls. And this is a very subtle thing because what happens is you don't have the option to choose not to be a sinner. Jesus did. Adam did. You don't. What's your option to choose? You have the option to choose to trust Christ for redemption and healing from sin. Do you see the difference between choosing not to sin and choosing salvation and choosing Christ? Do you see the subtle difference in those choices? And here, and well, this is very important because if you have your focus that salvation is choosing not to sin. My, my salvation is choosing to not sin. Then what happens is we develop a mindset that we become hypervigilant to identify any, any, any decision that might be sin. And we begin worrying about, well, is this going to be sin? Should I, should I do that on Sabbath? Should I do this on Sabbath? Should, we can't do this we make all, because we don't want to make any choices to sin. Versus the Bible's teaching we should fix our eyes on Christ or we should focus and think about, quote, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, whatever is excellent, whatever is praiseworthy. This is where we focus our mind. Now, it is true that when you focus your mind on Christ, when you focus your mind on doing the right, not avoiding the wrong, okay, it is true that when you're choosing the right, when you're choosing the righteous, when you're choosing the holy, you are simultaneously not choosing the wicked. That's true. But do you see the difference in focus in that choice? Do you see the difference in focus? It's a huge... I'm going to get your question. I'm going to bring this point home. When we focus on avoiding the sin only, we become very fearful. We become very consumed with, with what's will happen if I make the mistake. We become very consumed with the deeds and the behaviors. We focus on choosing the right. We are avoiding the wrong, aren't we? But we're growing to be more like Christ because by beholding, we become changed. We are sim- become changed. And so... 
I think that many of the legal theologies have a very subtle trick woven in to focusing people on the bad deeds, on the behaviors, on the things you're not supposed to do, on monitoring, rather than focusing on the character of Christ, on choosing not simply to avoid sin, but choosing, thinking like this, what can I do to promote the, the character of God? What can I do to love other people more? What can I do to fulfill God's purposes? What can I do to glorify him? See, that's a different thought process than what can I do to avoid getting a demerit against my record? Those are different processes of thought. And it leads you down different experiences and different character development. One quick example, and then we'll get your question. What happens if you spend lots of energy making sure that you don't think about a pink elephant? Don't think about a pink elephant. Be sure that you don't think about it. Don't bring pink elephants into your mind. It's evil to think about pink elephants, so you be sure you don't want to think about them. If you do that, what do you end up thinking about? But if you actually spend your time studying, examining, thinking about anything other than that, what are you also simultaneously not thinking about? You see, that's why you fill your mind with the good, the righteous, the holy, with Christ, not simply focusing on all the evil you don't want to think about. (laughs) Okay, question. Well, I just want to go back a little bit because uh, for so many years I was troubled by the unfairness of being born into a world a sinner. It it just seems so unfair. But Romans 5 really comforts us because it says, as by one man death entered, so by one man righteousness entered. And the way that happens, yes, Jesus had the Holy Spirit from his birth, but we also may have the Holy Spirit so we can be that beautiful mix of human and divine. Yes, so I thank you for saying that. Let's talk about the unfairness aspect. Unfairness only if you continue to respond from a human law construct. If you're under the design law construct, design, here's design law. HIV infected man, HIV infected woman get together and have a baby born HIV infected. What did the baby do wrong? It, is it fair that the baby was born HIV infected? No. Depends on what you mean by fair. <laughs> So, so think about this. Think design law with me. This is a quite profound mental process I want to put you through right now. Here's design law. This particular individual child that is now born, could this per- unique person be born from any other human parents? Or only these two could bring this particular individuality into the world. So the choice now for this individual is, I am born into the world or I never exist. The two people that are going to bring me into the world, they have a condition. They either bring me into the world with the condition or I never exist, which is more fair. Bring them into the world with the condition and a loving God has a healing remedy for that condition that you never chose. It's not your fault. He knows it's not your fault. You're not guilty for it. But this condition needs remedy and he will provide a remedy that you can have freely. Which is more fair, to never let you come into the world or to let you come into the world with the condition and provide a remedy for it? Is it fair? If you never came into the world, you wouldn't know it. Yes. And would you prefer that? Would you prefer never to have existed? Sometimes. <laughs> it's true. No, that's true. You know, uh, Ellen White wrote that into the experience of all comes times when death seems preferable to life. Absolutely. There are times when it seems preferable, but it's not. And if we would have uh, discernment, we would see God's angels working to put our feet back on the path of righteousness and to save us from ourselves. Yes. So, do you see how, under the design law, that it is absolutely fair? Because if God, and and by the way, you quoted Romans 5. In Romans 5, it also says that God left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. Even though there was law, people from, maybe that was Romans 3, Romans 5, even though there was law from the time of Adam to the time of Sinai, before the law was given, people still weren't, people were still dying. Why were they still dying even from the time of Adam to the time of Sinai when the law hadn't been given yet? This is what it says. Because it's not a legal system, it's designed. They have a condition now which results in death. It's, it's, a, it's, it's a design law thing, not a imposed law thing. And so, to me, it's extremely fair, more than fair. If God would let Adam and Eve reap the full consequences of what sin leads to in Eden, would any of us exist? No, they would have died right then and had no kids. So the whole race would have been lost. Was it fair that God allowed them to continue on in their condition and have children and Christ comes to earth and uh, this is, boy, when you get your mind around design law, this is amazingly fair. 
But when we think through human law constructs, well, I didn't do anything wrong, therefore I don't deserve to have this happen to me. <laughs> That's how we think. But then if you also think of the models in the New Testament, and Paul uses in Romans, Christ didn't come as the second Tim or the second Tina. He came as the second Adam. And all human beings were in Adam, just as all the Jews were in Abraham. And thus when Abraham gave tithe to Melchizedek, all the Levites had paid tithe to Melchizedek. This is the argument it makes. And so the whole human race was infected with the condition when Adam and Eve sinned. And through Christ, the whole human race has opportunity for remedy. So I see under design law, these things of fairness go away. And we say, wow, that's amazing. We either, and, and by the way, that, uh, that logic train I went you down, went, went, you, it's very helpful for people struggling with some condition that they may have in life. You could only exist as a person, even if you have the same biologic parents, if they get a pregnancy on a different cycle of mama's cycles, is it you? There's only one ovum mom had in her body that would be you, and only one sperm joining with that that would be you. Any other is not you. It's a sibling of yours. People don't recognize that. And so if you're born with some physical condition, okay, good, good news. When Christ comes, this mortality puts on immortality, this corruption puts on incorruption, you're going to get new physiology. But you, you couldn't have been born into the world to develop a Christ-like character in another physiology. There wasn't one for you, the unique person, to be. Is that kind of mind-boggling? It's kind of... Just think about that one. We'll move on. Okay. Talks about putting on the, the entire um, uh, armor of Christ. And I'm going to walk through reading from the remedy, uh, Ephesians 6, 10 through 18, and make a few comments along the way about the armor of Christ. If you think about the armor of Christ. So starting in verse 10. Finally, stay strong in your connection and devotion to the Lord and his mighty power. Arm your minds with God's complete set of armor so that you can join the ranks of Christ's soldiers and stand successfully in the face of the devil's schemes. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood with man-made weapons, but against the all individuals, entities, and powers that misrepresent God in darkened minds and against Satan, the originator of lies about God and his cohorts who also misrepresent God in heavenly realms. Does this bring to mind 2 Corinthians 10, 3-5? For though we live in the world, we don't wage wars the world does. The weapons we use are not worldly. They have divine power to demolish strongholds. We demolish arguments and pretensions that set themselves up against the knowledge of God. See, have you, have you considered that this war is a war that happens in your mind? That's where the war happens. Have you considered that the armor that you're to put on is some armor that goes in your mind? Let's keep going. Therefore, arm your minds with God's full set of armor so that when... Satan's grand deception comes, and it seems the heavens are about to fall, you are able to stand. Protecting your mind from infection with distortion, uh, discouragement, corrupt thinking, false belief systems. See, Satan is the father of lies. And where do lies have their power? Does the lies have power on your furniture? In your mind. That's right. This is uh, putting in the armor. So keep going. And when you have done everything to present the truth and expose Satan's lies, don't falter. Stand. Stand firm with the truth of God wrapped around you like a belt. What is the truth of God that we need to have? Primary truth. Primary foundational core truth that we need to have wrapped around us like a belt. Is it, pardon? I was going to say, is it primarily the truth about which day is the Sabbath? If you have the truth about which day is the Sabbath, but the God of the Sabbath is a God who arbitrarily made the day up and now threatens to punish rule breakers for breaking that day, do you have the truth that protects your mind or is your mind corrupt? Because you live in fear and you live a dicta and worship a dictator God. Keep going. With a righteous, Christ-like character developed within like a breastplate. Now, in the remedy, I expand. They just say the breastplate. I kind of expand these little things. I think the breastplate is the righteous character. How do we experience a righteous character? Is it passive, only through trust, and God does all the rest? Or is it cooperative? We trust God who provides new desires, motives, insights, wisdoms, truths. But then we choose to accept, apply, internalize, and identify with God and his truths and do what's right, healthy, and reasonable governance of ourselves. Is it, is it just passive, I trust you, do it for me? Or is it cooperative? 
And then the peace that comes from accepting the good news about God, like track shoes, providing good traction and solid foundation. Have you had in your experience as you've come to see God more and more consistently with how Jesus revealed him to be, a God who is the designer and creator and not the dictator, have you had more peace? And has that not put you a more solid foundation? Also, hold fast the shield of trust, which extinguishes the burning fear and insecurity brought by the devil's temptations. How does trust in God overcome temptation? Have you not noticed most temptations are rooted in some form of fear and insecurity? Most of them? Some form of fear and insecurity. Something that you're trying to protect self with, get self with, advance self with, promote self with, because you're fearful and insecure. Well, if you've ever been fearful and insecure and you have a circumstance where you can trust somebody, you're, you really trust them to, to have your back, what happens to your fear and insecurity? It goes down, doesn't it? When you really trust. So our trust in God extinguishes the fear and insecurity. Thus, it takes the devil's power to lead us into self, self-centered and self-promoting actions away. Take the helmet of a healed mind, a mind protected against the assaults of Satan. Satan. And what heals the mind and protects against the assaults of Satan? Truth and love, the two, two attributes of the Holy Spirit. Yep. And we get this by the mature of those who develop by practice the ability to discern the right from the wrong, Hebrews 5.14. And attack the lies of, of God, attack the lies about God with the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, the truth, and talk with God with an enlightened mind intelligently on all occasions about all your concerns, requests, plans, and issues. With all of this in mind, be alert and always keep praying for God's people. Second paragraph of the lesson states, true happiness and right living come from turning our eyes from possessions we own and looking to the living Christ who owns us. What does this mean, who owns us? Does this mean... We are property. We are slaves owned by the deity. When Jesus spoke to his disciples in John fifteen fifteen, he said, I no longer call you, now most translations say servants, the actual Greek word is the word for slaves. I no longer call you slaves, rather I call you friends because slaves don't know their master's business and I've let you in on everything. Does Jesus want to own us like slaves. Why? Why does that why is that not what he wants? Slaves don't make choices. What would happen in your mind if you believed you were owned as a slave in a slave mentality? I'm owned, I'm property. God owns me in that in that sense. He owns me that way. Does it affect your thinking? Does it affect your attitude? Does it affect what you're willing to do with God? Does it affect the way you talk to God? Does it affect whether you're willing to expand your mind and ask questions? I'm a slave, he owns me. Does God want that for us? Does it help us advance and grow? If you, last week, last Thursday's lesson said this. This is a sentence from last Thursday's lesson. We belong to God, both by creation and redemption. Oh, yes, go ahead. Can you explain bought with a price? Bought with a price. What does it mean? Bought with a price. It's a metaphor. Was there some... Uh, Super, say super Walmart in heaven that God got in line and filled it up with a whole bunch of people and went to the checkout counter and paid a price and bought us? Is there some mercantile exchange in which we were purchased? Bought with a price. We are told in Revelation that we are to buy the gold tried in the fire, the eye salve and the white raiment. We are to buy that from God. What does that mean? That we purchase it? How? What was necessary for our salvation? Christ. Why? Why was that necessary? There's a ransom price. We're ransomed. What's a ransom do? It's a price that's paid to free one held in bondage. You could similarly say bought with a price was the price paid to free us, to, to release us from what was holding us. Question, what holds us in bondage? So our own carnal natures and the lies we believe about God. What's the purchase price? 
the truth that destroys lies, and a new nature. So Christ, how could Christ provide those to us? Could Christ provide the truth about God without revealing God in a fashion that we could understand? So he became human so that we would know the truth about God, one reason. And could he provide a new human nature without actually developing a new human nature and destroying the infection? And that's what he did as a human. So the price that was necessary was the price of our, that our condition needed to be fixed. And so we were bought. It cost him. He paid a price. So similar this way. If you had a son dying of renal failure and you donated a kidney and it saved his life, they did the transplant, saved his life. We could say you paid a high price to save your son. We could say that. And we all understand the meaning of that, don't we? Does that mean it was a mercantile exchange? No. So, so that, that purchase price was the price necessary that our condition needed in order to fix it and remedy it, as I understand it. So back, we belong to God, both by creation and redemption. That was last week's lesson. This might be a slightly more helpful way than we're owned by God. Slightly more helpful way. Because it could connote something slightly different than property ownership being owned by a sovereign. Instead, we might belong to God, and see if you like this this way or not, or do you have objection to it. We might belong to God in the same way the, me- the meow belongs to the cat. The branch belongs to the vine. The child belongs to the parent. Think about that. Yeah, so without, without Christ, we would be dead, because we'd have no life. He's the life. That we-, we belong to God because, yes, only in union with God do we exist As it says in Acts, for in him we live and move and have our being. We belong to him because we are, and so all of creation has their origin, their substance, their existence from God, and thus we belong to him in a state of reality, not in a state of ownership. Does that make a difference in how you experience it? See, under the legal model, it leads our minds so quickly to legal ownership which is slavery, which is thoughtlessness. But God, we belong to God, yes, by creation and redemption, if we understand it that way. In the same way, your child belongs to you. But you don't own your child, do you? You see? Or leaves belong to a tree. Or leaves belong to a tree, exactly. Mm -hmm. And if the leaves disconnect from the tree, the vine disconnects from the branch, see what happens there? And so that's what I think. And I think it brings a lot more harmony that way. Sunday's lesson, third paragraph. The only cure for worldliness is whatever form it, in whatever form it comes is continual devotion to Christ through the, ups and the, through the ups and downs of life. Moses regarded disgrace for the sake of Christ as a greater value than the treasures of Egypt. Before any other relationship, Christ must be our first priority. Christ is looking for commitment based on conviction, not on preference. That is, we must be devoted to Christ because of who he is and that He and what he has done for us, not because of any immediate advantage our faith and commitment to him might bring. So let's talk about this. Devotion to Christ, absolutely essential. No doubt about it. I'm not questioning that. I'm validating that. But does it matter to which Christ one is devoted? Moses was devoted to God, so he would not allow himself to become corrupted with the wealth of Egypt. What about those people today, think about it now, who are so devoted to God that they will not allow themselves to be corrupted by the wealth of America, but will die in order to kill those who they view as enemies of their God? They don't care a thing about the wealth of America because they're so devoted to their God. Is their devotion to their God and refusal to be corrupted by our wealth make them righteous? Get your mind around that. You can be devoted to God if it's the wrong God, not be corrupted by wealth of what you believe in evil nation, and still be an enemy of God. What about if someone who is devoted to God and they also, they're devoted to God and they also have the following? They worship on the seventh day Sabbath. They believe in the inspired writings of God's prophetic penmen, 
they in, ha, and have those uh, to read. They they uh, ha, they have and practice a health message. They pay a tithe and offerings faithfully. They study their Bible daily. Uh, they are either on a church board or a conference committee, and they zealously keep all ten commandments. What about such devotion? The Sanhedrin. Saul of Tarsus, I was asked, but thank you. Yes, he was part of that. Saul of Tarsus. Did Saul of Tarsus meet all those criteria? And prior to Damascus Road, was he a righteous man? What, no, if you read the, the New Testament, he actually sought an, an authorization from the priest to kill people who were worshiping Jesus. He's doing all these things. Devotedly. Dev, was he devoted? I'm just pointing out devotion to your creator God, if you don't understand his character, is not sufficient. What was the one thing Saul of Tarsus did not know yet, but he didn't come to know it? The truth about God's character of love revealed in Christ and thereafter, Damascus Road, you notice before Damascus Road, he's willing to kill people who believe differently. After Damascus Road, he says, I'll gladly give my life that my fellow Jews might be saved. In other words, he's not willing to die for others. Complete reversal. Do you see that reversal? Paul became righteous, became renewed, experienced a change of internal motive such that selfishness was replaced with other-centered love. So the lesson is quite right. We must be devoted to Christ because of who he is. That's what the lesson said. Quite right. Yes. What you were just saying reminded me of a phrase that I used to hear, that a person becomes so heavenly minded that there's no earthly good. <laughs> yes. Yes. That's a good one. That's a good one. Monday's lesson. First paragraph. With more than 6 billion Bibles, more than 6 billion Bibles have been distributed worldwide, but how many are viewed as the word of the living God? How many are read with sincere, open heart to know the truth? What does it mean the Bible is the word of the living God? Does it mean that when we read the Bible, we are reading dictation from God? I didn't hear an answer to that. Okay, thank you. Uh, When we read the Bible, are, are we reading material personally written by God? Other than the Ten Commandments, I'll exclude the Ten Commandments. Yeah, but other than that, are we reading material personally written by God? Are we reading pure heavenly language? No. Only James. Only the King James. (laughs) Are we to take the Bible as directives exactly as it reads and do it? Smash the babies against the rocks. That's Psalms. Uh, happy is the man who takes his enemy's babies and smashes their heads on the rocks. Or Deuteronomy, Deuteronomy 14. Take the tithe and buy fermented wine and come and celebrate before the Lord. Do we take it exactly as it reads and do Is that how it's to be read? Um, do we believe that every sentence in the Bible is truth from God? If, read the book of Job. Okay? There are lots of sentences in there that are not God's thoughts being expressed, but it's a story form so that we can see the difference between truth and error. But not everything. So you can't just pluck a, a Bible verse out, quote it, and say, this is what the Bible says. It might be quoting the devil or one of the devil's agents, right? Okay? Yeah. So how do we understand the Bible? Do we believe that it is inspired by God? I absolutely do. Yes. I absolutely do. But how does inspiration work? God inspires sinful human beings with ideas, truths, concepts, visions, dreams, facts, historical events for them to record in the language that they choose, in the many times the descriptions and words that they think are most effective in their ability to communicate these things. You actually will see this reading some of the prophets who had visions. They're trying to describe things that they don't even have words to describe that they've seen. It goes back to also your belief of who God is because there are churches that have violent understanding of who God is and stand up with great force and protest. Does this mean the Bible is 100% accurate in every factual detail? No. There's some interesting points I put in the notes for those who are interested. 1 Kings 4.26. Let me read that to you. 1 Kings 4.26. And Solomon had 40,000 stalls of horses for his chariots and 12,000 horsemen. Second Chronicles 9.25. And Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen. One place it's 40,000, one place it's 4,000. Second Kings 24.8. 
Second uh, Kings twenty four eight. Jehoiakim was eighteen years old when he became king, and he reigned in Jerusalem for three months. Second Chronicles thirty six nine. Jehoiakim was eight years old when he became king and reigned in Je- Jerusalem three months and ten days, which is the right version. We don't care. But this is the point, right? So, so, but we're talking about inspiration. This is inspired word of God, right? See, this is important for people to process through. There's others. I've got another one, but there's many of these things like this in Scripture. Are there differences in Scripture from the various authors on accounts of the same events? Yes. Yes, there are. Does that suggest unreliability or reliability? Reliability. Reliability. Why? Because no two people see the same thing the same. Exactly. If you have ten people stand as witnesses and watch an accident on a corner, and all ten people write down what they observed, will they all write the exact same thing? In fact, you will have some that are almost contradictory. The red car hit the blue car on the left side. The next person might write the blue car hit the red car on the left side. I mean, you will have that in witnesses. They will have opposites sometimes. They see it differently. Does that mean either one of them are lying? No. And people know, in fact, talk to investigators. When investigators get people witnesses and they're investigating crimes and stuff and they have people come forward and they all tell the exact same story with the exact same details, what does that tell investigators? There's collusion and they have got their stories together because that's not how true life stories unfold. So the fact that there is little detailed differences like this in Scripture give veracity and reliability to the integrity of the manuscript. So then can we take the Bible as the Word of God? Let's ask some more questions first. What is the purpose of the Bible? Is the Bible to be used as an algebra textbook? Computer programming, astrophysics, astrophysics, neurobiology. Even is the Bible primarily to be used as a his- history book? Is that its purpose, primary purpose? It's a history book. So get your mind around all that. The primary purpose of the Bible is what? Yeah, you all said it in multiple different ways. A revelation of God to man in the setting of the great controversy to expose evil, to expose the truth about God in, in, in ways necessary to let the plan of salvation be understood and people to participate in God's healing plan. That's its purpose. It's not a purpose for these other things. Now, in that light, in that setting, is it the word of God? Absolutely. But you even find in the New Testament various contradictions going on. Paul himself, who's inspired by the Holy Spirit, writing the New Testament. Misquotes. <laughs> he might misquote, but I was going to say, you know, at one point, I, I didn't, I'm glad I didn't baptize anybody, baptize anybody except so-and-so. Oh, yeah, there was one other person I did. I, I, but as far as I can remember, there wasn't anybody besides that. Remember this? <laughs> Did the Holy Spirit have better memory than that? It wasn't the Holy Spirit's memory. It was Paul's memory. Were those words inspired? There's another place, I can't remember the exact text right now, but you can look it up, where Paul... says, I'm not inspired. That's that's where I was going to go. Yes, I have no word from the Holy Spirit on this, but as one who is wise, I will tell you. So there is a portion of Scripture that you can actually say is not inspired, because the inspired person said, I'm not inspired here, it's my own wisdom. (laughs) And it's about relationships, I believe, about marrying and not marrying and so forth. All the advice advice about how to... Get along with how, whether to marry whether to marry or not marry, and it would be better for you to be like me and not marry, but I don't have any inspiration on this. So is that the word of God? It's the word of Paul. Yes, it's the word of Paul, but it's also the word of God in the sense. It reveals how God operates. It reveals that God leaves people free to have differences of opinion, that God lets people share their wisdom and perspectives, but leaves other people free. He's not telling people what to do. So in that sense, the principles of God are being modeled here. But those direct words are not necessarily from God, nor is that wisdom from God. It's Paul's wisdom. And we have to always add that in the multitude of counselors, there's wisdom. And we can get wisdom from godly people who are students of the Scripture, even though they're not inspired prophets. Yes, absolutely. And inspired prophets, you know, what's the Bible say? Um, uh, Some people in the Adventist church really get their, you know, 
hackles up when it comes to questions about Ellen White. It's a que- is she inspired? Is she not inspired? You know, to me, that's an irrelevant question, completely irrelevant. Why is it irrelevant? What does the Bible say about spiritual things? Spiritual things are understood by people in their own human strength and worldly knowledge. Spiritual things are spiritually discerned, which meaning that any of us who comes to truth about God's kingdom, spiritual truth, we're only able to come to that spiritual truth by the workings of the Holy Spirit. Whether that's Max Licato or Billy Graham or Ellen White or whomever it was. And so she wrote about her writings, they should be tested by the scripture. And so if you read her writings or anybody's writings and you find their truth validated in scripture, then you can have confidence it was enlightened by the Holy Spirit and stop worrying about whether she had this mantle or that mantle. It's really irrelevant. Isn't it? Well, the relevant question is, was it true? That's the relevant question, not whether she had a mantle or a, a, an office. Am I missing something there? Do you think she would be out, if she was alive today, arguing that we recognize her as a prophet? No, she, she would be arguing that you recognize Jesus Christ and the truth about his kingdom and apply it to your life. That's what she'd be arguing. When you know someone, from an, as I have, from another denomination who's a deep Bible student... You realize that many of the things we think came from Ellen White, that's because we read them in that clarity from Ellen White. But if you were a deep Bible student, you would have been able to find it as she did in the Bible. And that's the point. That's what she said. Uh, you know what? I'm, I'm a lesser light, and everything she wrote should be checked by. And if anything you find in her writing that contradicts the Bible, you shouldn't believe it. So very humble, very reasonable. And so I don't really get into those arguments. I'm like, look, if it's true, the Bible will confirm it, and it doesn't really matter who wrote it. So can we have confidence in the reliability of the Bible for what it was intended for? Absolutely. But not for uses it wasn't intended for. Like when Galileo was alive, astrophysics, the sun is the, 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 the sun is uh, revolves around the earth. That's what some people, you know, and, and the earth is flat. And there's four corners because there's four corners. It's not an astrophysics guide, is it? No. I was reading, um, speaking about how we use the scripture, I was reading in the Desire of Ages this week about Jesus' birth and the story of where the Magi came and looking for Jesus and went to the religious leaders who really were unaware, and, uh, they, but they, they found the, you know, Bethlehem and so forth, and, and how afterwards um, Herod sent soldiers to kill the, those two years of age, males, two years of age, and so forth. So that's the context. I'm reading, reading this now, Desire of Ages 65. The calamity the Jews had brought, this calamity the Jews brought upon themselves. If they had been walking in faithfulness and humility before God, he would have, in a signal manner have made the wrath of the king harmless to them, meaning the execution of the children. But they had separated themselves from God by their sins. What's that called? It's the wrath of God. God said, me back and not protecting, okay? And had rejected the Holy Spirit, which was their only shield. Now, this is where it comes to the Bible study part. They had not studied the scriptures with a desire to conform to the will of God. They had searched for prophecies which could be interpreted to exalt themselves and to show how God despised all the other nations. It was their proud boast that the Messiah was to come as a king, conquering his enemies and treading down the heathen in his wrath. Thus, they had excited the hatred of their rulers." Through their misrepresentation of Christ's mission, Satan had purpose to compass the destruction of the Savior. But instead of this, it turned upon their own heads. Now, there's a lesson here. I'm going to ask you questions. What what you just heard. What did you hear being the problem for them? Can we break it down? Did they humble themselves or not humble themselves before God? They did not. Did they retain both personal and national pride? Yes. And national pride. We're proud. We're Jewish. Okay. And our nation is the chosen people. Okay. Their selfish pride separated them from God by refusing to follow and align with him. Yes. Okay. They studied scriptures. They did study scriptures. She said it right there. It says, um, they had searched for the prophecies which could be interpreted to exalt themselves and show how God despised the other nations. They searched for... Uh, uh, ho- 
be very you know, self-introspective here, guys, because I'm, I'm going to apply this any second to, to, to Christians. They searched scriptures, but not to know God's truth or will. They studied prophecy to prove themselves special and others despised from God. This attitude excited hatred in the rulers. Do Christian groups do this today? Are there any Christian groups who study Bible prophecies in order to promote their organization as elite, as special, as chosen, as better, and the other ones who don't have certain doctrines and, let's say, you know, um, uh, keep to hold of the commandments and have the testimonies, if they don't do that, they're, gonna, they're, they're getting them the mark of the beast, and they're despised by God. And we know God is coming with a wrath of iron to punish the nations. And he will torment people as long as they deserve before he kills them in the end. Do we have people present this type of view of God? This is what the Jews are doing. Misrepresenting Christ in this way. And they completely were unprepared for him. And it came back on their own head and led to their own destruction. If we have church organizations teaching this, do you think it may come back to persecute the very people who teach it? Look at Waco, if you want a more extreme example. The Branch Davidians at Waco absolutely did this to themselves. Thursday's lesson about the great controversy, battling over the great controversy is real, two sides battling for our own souls. I had the question, have you trained your mind, as it says in Hebrews 5.14, that you've been able to develop the ability to discern by practice the ability to, to tell the right from the wrong? Can you clearly tell whether something's operational on God's side of the great controversy or on the devil's side of the great controversy? Can you, can you different? There's a, there's a controversy. Can you tell which methods, where, where God works and how he works? No. Do you have a criterion where you can put, you can bring that criterion and say, you know what, I need to, evaluate. is this, is this spirit of God working here? Or is this a counterfeit spirit working here? How often we can. We can. What method do you use? What's your criterion? What filter? What's, what are you, what, what, what are you using here? If you speak not according to the word, there is no light in them. So if they speak not according to the word, there's no light in them. So if anybody uses the Bible, then we're good? No. You just got finished saying that the Bible is freedom. Truth presented in love, leaving people free. I like where you're going with that. Often, if you ask the question, are the consequences built in to occur naturally, or are they imposed? That could be a... Uh, filter. I love what you just said there. I want to tell you, the, you know, I, I don't have the quote this week. It was that three weeks ago I read this quote. But the, the final controversy will end over what it began in heaven. A question over God's law versus man's law. That's what, that's what, that's what she said in the controversy. It's, it will end over that question. How, do, how does God's law function? It's design law. It's how things are built. Principles of love, truth, freedom that you're saying. Those functionally God's law versus man's laws always function by coercion. No one can buy or sell save him who has the mark of the beast. Coercive pressure brought to bear to get compliance to punish lawbreakers. Watch for that. You will see it over and over again. And when you see that, you can have a right doctrine and the wrong method. That's not working of God. You can have the right day of the week pass laws to enforce and coerce and imprison those who don't keep the right day of the week, you see. That's not God. God's not going to do that, is he? But many Christians think he will. He's going to come back. He's going to come with, 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 with words and melodious things and do healings. He's going to say, I just want you to love me, but if you don't love me, justice requires I must punish sin. I don't want to punish you. Please don't make me punish you. Please worship me. But if you won't worship and accept me, justice requires I must punish you for your disobedience. And how many Christians are going to go, this is our God. We waited for him. How many Adventists are going to do that? I can't tell you, the people who have lined up against us, one of the core things that they disagree with us on is they say, in the end, justice will require God to use his power to punish the wicked. Thus, they will be take hook, line, and sinker. Yes, he's love. He's grace. He, he only wants our worship. He wants our adoration. He heals the sick. He does all these miracles. But it's true. Justice justice requires he punish. And, and he doesn't want to punish you. Just worship him. He won't punish you. But, but if you don't worship him, he will torture you and kill you. That's God. Many Adventists are going to go right hook, line, and sinker. As long as it's doing it on the seventh-day Sabbath. It's not. God doesn't work this way. You, you got the quotes lined up so many I've given you before. 
that God could have destroyed Satan and his sympathizers as easy as one cast a pebble to the ground, but he wouldn't do it because he would not give a precedent for the exercise of force. Coercive pressure or power is found only under Satan's government. That's what we really need to watch for. Methodology, not simply write doctrines. Methodology of application. How does one live? Do we present the truth in love and leave people free? Or do we use coercive pressure and call it justice? Our gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you are a God of truth and love, the source of all life and all goodness. And Lord, we open our hearts to you and ask the Spirit will come and take your victories, reproduce it in us. Give us the, not only the wisdom and the discernment, but give us the heart of love and passion, but always operating under your principles of leaving others free to make up their own mind. We pray that you'll come soon, Lord, in your holy name. Amen.